neuroplasticity is how your brain changes after, especially after the age of 25, when it is harder to change. But as I always say, it, you're never too old and it's never too late. So it's about understanding what it takes to make change. I'll have what she's having. Welcome to another edition of Digital Confidence Podcast. Everybody, welcome back. This is the She Talks Confidence Podcast. I'm your host, Tony. You know that. My very special guest this week, I'm Dr. Alice Penn. Doc, how are you? Hi, Tony. I am really well today and very excited to be here. I'm so excited. And you're over there in merry old England right now, and I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona. So there's two parts that we're going to talk about today uh, that we just agreed on. And the first thing is the, your personal story and about you making a huge shift from being a medical doctor and going through all that sacrifice, all the blood, sweat, and tears, having a practice for 10 years, I think is what I saw, and then saying, no, nah, this is just not, this is not my gig. This isn't working for me. And then making a huge shift out of that, even though you were established and a prominent physician. The second thing, what I want to talk about, and I'm going to nerd out with you on this because I love it, is neuroplasticity. Basically, what that is, it's research-backed evidence that people can change. You can change your thoughts. You can change your actions after your thoughts. So we're going to go into that. So Alice is an international coach, a keynote speaker. She successfully grew her private medical practice by combining her compassion with her laser-like problem-solving abilities. She's an entrepreneur and founder of Alice Penn MD. Dr. Alice is a master in the art and science of change, which we're going to talk about, and knows what it takes to level up both personally and professionally. So let's get into you and your story, where you came from, what got you into the medical in the first place, Mm -hmm. and then what happened through the whole sacrifice and into the getting in there and then saying, eh, this might not be for me. Tony, first thing you've got to know about me, I'm the eldest daughter in a family of fairly high achievers, father, quite a prominent medical doctor, specialist. My mother's got three degrees. So it was no surprise that I became quite a sort of high-achieving, driven child. And I played all the sports, did all the academics, was in all the school plays, music, you name it, I did it. And I got towards the end of school, considering what I would do after school. We call it university. I know you call it college. But I decided I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I'm not saying my parents pressurized me, but it felt like the right thing to do would be to go to medical school. And the Uh system is a little different there. And I started when I was 17, first day at medical school, 17. Hmm. And I knew pretty much after about a year there that I wasn't in the right place for me. Or I had that feeling. So after the first year, you knew, right? You had the sense that it wasn't jiving with you. I didn't have the confidence to know that those signs, things I should pay attention to. So I thought... It's probably something wrong with me. I'm just not, haven't got the right attitude. Maybe I haven't tried hard enough. Maybe I'm ungrateful, whatever it is. So yeah. year after year, this would go on. And I got through my medical degree into my houseman years, all the training that goes with it. We have to do a whole lot of community service in South Africa because of the rural hospitals. Then I moved over to London, got into medicine here. I did look at swapping careers a few times. I even got offered jobs in investment banking. I got offered a job to sit on one of the trading desks. And at the last minute, I took a role in the financial district in the city in London. Mm. But although you mentioned so generously my bio being the master in the art and science of change, not only have I been through big changes career-wise, but personally at the same time, changes were going on. 
having to do both of those at the same time where you can't control it, it's really important, right? To understand the concept of it and to understand that you can do it, even though it like hits twice. Exactly. And I, I mentioned I was really driven and, but as part of that, I became quite a perfectionist. So I began to associate being perfect with being loved. I needed to be good enough. And yeah. this perfectionism became a real driving force in my life. And it eventually turned to quite a dark side later on as I was an adult. It already started when I was younger, but it was almost like a way of avoiding the feeling of shame of getting something wrong. I hated that feeling. I hated being told, no, that wasn't quite good enough. And I couldn't deal with it very well. And I got a lot of praise for being a high achiever. So perfectionism really started to drive me. Go ahead. At the same time, I was married to an alcoholic. So I was early on in my marriage. And unfortunately, when you're a perfectionist, you're trying to be perfect for this addict in your life. Nothing is ever going to be perfect enough. So I had this situation. I was miserable as a doctor. Or let's not say I was miserable. I just knew I wasn't making the most of who I really was. And back at home, I was under a lot of strain. And so the cracks started to show. I'm a card-carrying perfectionist myself, recovering perfectionist myself. Yeah, I so phrase, I totally, yeah. I totally, and we talked about that before. Yeah. It's so incredible, all the characteristics of perfectionists. With the women that I've talked to and my clients over the years, it's such a, it's such a prominent characteristic mm. with successful professional women that they have this or they've been battling with this perfectionist type of a mental state. Yeah. And the fact that, you, that even though you have all these things, you keep moving the carrot on yourself. And most interestingly enough is that you typically the relationships that happen with you you bring on these people that are a, as a as either kind of a savior thing or these people that need way more help than you can afford to exactly. give anybody can give and yet you take on the en enable them in their in the, right <laughs> yeah it's a sort of a, which is a no win situation yeah. you had that no win situation with the alcoholic aspects in terms of the relationship. You were in a, a job that you just had mentioned you weren't miserable, but you weren't fulfilled, I guess is what I heard. What exactly. finally snapped on all that? I think that knowing I reached a point that, yes, I wasn't miserable to start with. And I always like to be very clear when I tell my story that I will forever be grateful for the patience I had. Because people open up to you and they tell you things that they wouldn't tell other people. And you make very close connections in a way. So I will always be grateful for that. However, for me, I'll, over time, just knowing that this isn't the life that I want to be living forever, I would ask myself, do, can I do another 30 years of this? Can I do this till I'm in my 60s? Mm. And that feeling of doom, and it just started hanging over me. It actually reached a point that... I would get up in the morning and I would wish that something would happen to me on the way into work because I couldn't say, hey, I need a break. I couldn't tell people I'm in trouble, I'm struggling, somebody needs to help me. So I would think literally, Tony, maybe one of these huge London buses will knock me over. And so then you, I started to think, I'm now, maybe this isn't <laughs> a good thought to be uh, having. So you actually were praying for an outside force instead of you having to make the decision, yeah. praying for an outside force to actually make the decision for you is mm. what I'm hearing. Is that mm. what exactly. was happening? What was the final breaking point on all that? The final breaking point is that I actually 
I don't like to go into huge detail here, but I will tell you that I got into a terrible state with my physical health because of this perfectionism drive. So I became, I work harder and harder. I sleep less. I exercise more. I struggle mm-hmm. to eat. And literally physically, I fell apart and I needed to take some time off work. So I was literally forced out. I'd realized I'm actually now too unwell. I need time out. And I took some time out. And in that time, I realized this is the opportunity to make this big change. And I had my private practice was in the financial district. My clients were bankers and lawyers in finance, that environment. I used my connections and people I knew, and I was given an amazing job in corporate finance at one of the big four firms. And yeah, I had a really successful and wonderful time there until my marriage eventually did end. (laughs) I went through a similar thing. Yeah, I went through a similar thing. And then that's where the... After that is where the big personal level of change really happened for me. And that's where the neuroscience comes into it. So I'm happy to chat through what tipped it over into neuroscience for me. Right. What a huge transition. Can you talk about that straw that broke the camel's back and then how you cultivated your inner confidence, your sense of true self from the ashes on that and into what you're doing now? Yeah. So I think even when I was a young child, I had, I guess it was low self-esteem. I'd really feel like I'm not, there's something wrong with me. I'm not as good as the other kids. I masked that with working really hard. Funnily enough, even though I was really shy and introverted, I always loved being on the stage. So I would get up there and I think it was almost like a, an alternate persona. I can get up there and just be somebody else. I think that I always knew deep down that I was capable of doing something great. I just didn't know what it was. I think that when I left medicine, I had still retained the sense of there's still something left in me to give. I've got a natural gift, an innate gift, some of my natural strengths, God-given gifts, whatever you want to call it. I know that they are in there. Like I just never lost that feeling. And it was almost the fact that I wasn't using it that was driving me over the edge. Mm -hmm. So I'd never lost that. But when I went through figuring out how I was going to get work outside of medicine. What helped me a lot was also speaking to people I knew and asking them, what would you do if you were me in my position? And through that, I started to realize that people saw me in a different way than I saw myself. Can you explain the difference in terms of how you saw yourself versus how they did? What was the big shift? What was the difference? Exactly. So I'd be thinking to myself, I'm just a doctor. I don't know anything like these people in the city. I'm just, I feel young and innocent and I haven't, maybe I'm not as, as, as talented as these people I see around me. But when I met with people who I respected and they fed back to me, what we see is this, we see an accomplished person, an intelligent person. We see you've got so much to give. It helped renew a sense of confidence that, Hey, I'm going to give this thing a go. I'm going to try and do something else. And I did. And I never looked back. So for me, speaking to other people, and it's something I do with my clients, I say, if you've become blind to your own gifts, start to ask even just 10 people that you know, where do you see me at my best? What am I doing? What's the thing that you think I'm really great at? And you'll see that what can come out can be really fantastic and really amazing. So usually at the end of the show, I ask for a call to action or like a little tidbit or technique or something you can share with everybody that's listening. And you just did. So we'll just use that as the call to action because that's such a great tool. We get so caught up in our own inner world and our turmoil, and especially from a perfectionist scenario that we 
don't see all of it. it's the force through the trees type of a thing. And it's so great to get a supporter's opinion, not somebody who you know is in their own stuff because they yeah. may project onto you their th- stuff and it won't give you an accurate read. But if it's somebody that you know that can give you a real honest approach to it in terms of your assets and your liabilities too, just to give you a good sense of balance. Now, that being the case, and now you having an an idea, more of an expanded idea in terms of the things you have to offer, which basically reinforced that that inner burn that you had in you that you had talked about in regards to always knowing that there was something in there that you can Mm -hmm. contribute, maybe listening to the outside voices in terms of the medical thing, put you on a little bit of a wrong path. Now you're getting aligned in that. We know that change is really super hard. It just is. It just is what it is. But it's not impossible. And there is a way that we can do it. And it has something to do with this thing called neuroplasticity. Plasticity, so yeah. can you chat about that? And I'm just going to nerd out here for a few minutes. Yeah. And I really just want to share a short bit of my personal story to lead into that. So mm-hmm. after I'd finished in my finance job, before I'd, I'd had, but my marriage had ended. And again, I was in a terrible state with my mental health and my physical health. And I actually got on a plane and flew back to South Africa to be a little bit closer to my family because that's where I'm originally from. And in that time, I got some professional help. And they said to me, listen, Alice, you are now nearly 40. I actually had a wonderful experience of turning 40, living in my parents' house back in my childhood bedroom. Yikes. And they said, listen, you have had this way of thinking and coping strategies for so long that they are wired into your brain. Your brain is fixed. And the chance of you actually making much change, it's very slim. We've tried, to, we've tried to help you a few times before, but you keep doing the same thing over and over again and getting yourself into this terrible mental health, physical health, really suffering. And because I was a medical doctor, I knew that the brain is fixed to a certain degree before the age of 25. So I knew that they were right. But again, this thing that I was talking about, knowing that I still had something to give, at that stage, I thought... I'll be damned if everything that I have been through in my personal life, all this change in my professional life, how hard I've worked, that it's all going to be for nothing. So I'm going to find out more about how to change. I'm quite sciencey. And as much as I, I am a coach and I love coaching, I felt that so much of it was just about talking and I needed real action. And that's why I got into neuroplasticity. Mm-hmm. So neuroplasticity really is just the brain's ability to change And it usually occurs from some outward stimulus. So you need something to stimulate the brain in order for change to occur. Neuroplasticity is how your brain changes after, especially after the age of 25, when it is harder to change. But as I always say, you're never too old and it's never too late. So it's about understanding what it takes to make change. So I was really filled with hope and that's what I try and bring to my clients because many people get into their, even their late 20s, their 30s, their 40s, and they think, that's it, I'm done. This is me. And I just believe that there's lots that we can do practically. So neuroplasticity, if you think about it in two steps, number one is the stage where you need to apply some focus. You need to apply some attention, perhaps a little bit of strain and that feeling of challenge into doing whatever this new thing is. Maybe you're learning, let's say, a new language or a musical instrument. And you then undertake this new habit or this new action that you're trying to form. It may even be a new thought. And you perform this and you repeat this. 
That is stage one. People think that is when change is occurring. And I want to just highlight that you need to place focus and attention and a little bit of strain and challenge because when you do that, it releases certain neuromodulators, chemicals in your brain that highlight and mark the brain cells for change. The second stage of neuroplasticity is sleeping. That is when the change actually occurs. So these cells and pathways that you've marked for change are actually embedded down when you sleep. And what you have to do is you have to toggle between these two states. So what does this tell us? What's useful? Repetition. So you've got to keep at it. You've got to be consistent. You've got to keep chipping away. And you actually need that feeling of challenge. You need that resistance. You need to have that friction. Because without it, you're not actually going to start kicking off that neuroplasticity process. So it's so important for people to understand that they have to overcome that resistance to make change. Because the, that is why change is hard. So we actually right, want to say, is. this feels hard. This is awesome. This means I'm about to do something different. Did you ever watch the Truman yeah, yeah, Show, yeah, of course, the movie, of course. where he finally is starting to get the fact that he's like in this bubble and he needs to get out and he needs to break out and he's finally been convinced. And so he sails to the wall and then the storm happens and then he gets to the wall and he has to pound through the wall. I always see that as an image in my mind about this because it is so true. The fact that you don't understand you need to make the change unless you hit the resistance. That is a needed component in all mm -hmm. of this. If things mm -hmm. were easy, then you would just be living in the matrix. You'd be living in your own bubble the same way. Exactly. That's in the whole ritual thing, the practice thing, the consistency thing is are very important things. I right. know from a perfectionist standpoint, and this is the problem I come up with, is the fact that when I do go through and I understand finally that there a change needs to be made and I'm trying to make modifications habitually, ritually. Yeah, yeah. I try to do too much at once. Exactly. And that's my problem. And then I think, I okay, I can- personality problems. Right? Everyone tries <laughs> right? that. And then I get super bummed out. The wall's like way higher than I could ever achieve because I'm not doing it in small practice ritual increments like you had talked yeah. about. And I think that is a huge- component to this is taking that small half step. Every or that single first neuroscientist step. you hear talking will say, the biggest mistake is people start with too much. Now, if I had to say to you, look, you want to embed down a new reading habit. I say, okay, start with two minutes a day. Mm -hmm. So that sounds like a waste of time, but it actually isn't. You have to start, you do have to start small. James Clear in the book Atomic Habits is an awesome story about a guy who has a huge amount of weight that he wants to lose for his fitness sake. And he starts by just getting up out of bed every morning, putting his gym clothes on. He does that for a few mornings. Then he adds on picking up his car keys, getting into his car. Then he adds on driving to the gym, adds on filling up his water bottle, adds on three minutes on the cycle. He does that every day. And over a year, he loses the weight he needs. And he's actually really in that habit of going to yeah. the gym four to five times a week. Yeah. So starting small is a really big one. You need just the right amount of challenge that there's the cells are marked for change, but not so difficult that you can't keep up at it. Yeah. One of the things to think about is if you are 1% better every day, you're 37 times better at the end of the year, which is okay. if you think about it like that, you can say, yeah. okay, I need something that I can chip away at. Well, whatever you repeat is your brain actually sees as important 
whether it's for better or worse. So you want to choose what it is that you're repeating wisely. And if you can start small, then the things you're trying to build into your life can become those great things that become more habitual. It's a guarantee success the way that this works. I was a personal trainer for 20 some odd years. And at the beginning, I would have my clients go crazy. And of course, they were paralyzed from overdoing it too much. So eventually, I realized through the process is that when they first came in the first workout or two, I would literally have them do hardly anything, no weights. Their question to me 100% of the time is, why am I not doing more? Exactly. And, And the whole thing is that I'm like, you don't need to do more. This is about mind-muscle connection. This is about making a small shift. This is about not waking that big ego up, the ego being the one that's trying to keep you in the bubble, all the protection devices that have been implemented Mm -hmm. over the years and years. Don't wake up the giant. Just go in and do some slight things so you don't disturb them until it becomes a ritual and until it becomes a habit. That's why neuroplasticity is a research fact, and it is something that we can all do but exactly. as you had indicated the key is start small my yeah. question to you is how does that relate to your experience in terms of going through this process and how does it relate to your confidence going through this process what we do know from the science point of view is that our identity is the most important component to making change, to kicking off the neuroplasticity. So we learned a lot about from Viktor Frankl, actually, who Mm -hmm. survived World War II camps. But when he was in the camps, and he was actually a neuroscientist and a psychiatrist, I think he had three different specialities, a medical doctor. He realized that the people who were surviving were the people who had a clear vision of their future selves. So he, for example, had a manuscript that he was working on. It kept it hidden on him the whole way through the camps. They destroyed it. And he decided, I am going to be Viktor Frankl, who writes this book and has it published after this war is over. And that's exactly what he did. And even the more modern day psychologists, they all talk about the same thing, the idea of future self. So for me, what worked for me and what works for my clients is to harness this notion of creating a vision of future you. So I tie that in then for me with confidence. I picture me in my awesome life. I even close my eyes and I really get into the feeling of it and I rehearse it. So there's the repetition. I'm rehearsing, thinking, feeling, and acting like future me. Future me is confident. Future me is confident in her relationships. She's financially independent. She speaks her mind. She has a growing, flourishing business. She has healthy family. She, whatever it is that I can think about, what is the coffee I'm drinking every morning? What do I eat? Where am I living? And all of these things. So if you can use visualization, because we know at a brain level that visualization is almost as powerful, if not as powerful as actually performing it physically. So you're bringing together visualization, this idea of future self, And you're repeating that every morning and you're starting to create, rewire up and refire up these new neural pathways. And I've actually got a little exercise. It's alicepenmd.com forward slash brain power, which will teach people how to actually do that themselves. So that is how I tied in confidence. So every day when I come up with making a decision, I can think, what should I do? What would future me do? What does confident 
Alice do? Because everything you do, as James Clear says, is a vote for or against future self. So when you're in that moment of self-doubt, you can think now, future Alice, future Tony, what do they do? What choice do they make? Do they stand up and get out there and do that thing they're frightened of? Or do they hold back and wait for tomorrow? So that is a way of bringing the kind of neuroscience together with confidence. That's certainly what I feel and have seen has really helped people. That's a mic drop. That's brilliant. That's a perfect way to end the show, Dr. Alice Penn. Thank you so very much. That was an outstanding nerd out on neuroplasticity. Plus, thank you for sharing your personal story and your trials and tribulations and and how you're moving and grooving up at this point. I know you had mentioned the quiz or the information. Can you give your other contact information? So I am on LinkedIn and you can just look for Alice Payne MD and I'm on Instagram quite a lot. It's Alice Payne underscore MD. I've got a YouTube channel with loads of helpful and practical videos. Also Alice Payne MD and my website, alicepainmd.com. Thank you very much again, Alice. I really appreciate it. And again, if you have any comments or questions for me, you know how to get a hold of me. It's Tony at JavaFun.com. This is it for this week, and I will talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye. Thanks, Tony. Thanks for having me.